My name is Rob Heron, and I am the youth pastor here at Redeemer Presbyterian Church. And our senior pastor, Hal Farnsworth, is out of town this week, and so he asked me to preach this week. He has been in a two-semester series on cosmology, looking at the book of Genesis and the first chapters, talking about the way things are in God's order, the way things are meant to be. And I decided this week to talk about the reality we all experience, which is that when we look around ourselves in our lives, in the world, in the news, things are very often not what they're supposed to be. That there's disorder. Something's wrong. And what we're looking at today in Romans 8 is Paul's answer to us of where's the hope when we see disorder, when things are wrong. And the hope he gives us is true. It's real. It's not a cheap hope. It's a hope we find only in Jesus Christ. So if you would read with me Romans 8, 18 through 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word to us, that you have revealed your character, you revealed your son, and you have revealed your plan for this world and for us. And I pray that your spirit this morning would set our hearts on fire with a longing and a passion for you, that we would groan and long for more of you and to see your, con- your kingdom spread and spring up in our lives and in this world. We pray this in your name. Amen. There's a book by a man named Kurt Vonnegut. And he, it's a book called Cat's Cradle. It's a very odd book. The, the main character in the book, at one point in this novel, he hears about another book, book within a book. He hears about a book, and the title of the book is What Can a Thoughtful Man Hope for Mankind on Earth Given the Experience of the Past Million Years? Question mark. So what can man hope for given our experience over a long time? And this is what Kurt Vonnegut says in the book, these are the words of the main character. It says, it doesn't take long to read this book. It consists of one word and a period. This is it. Nothing. What can a thoughtful man hope for, given our experience? Nothing. 
I would say this is a fairly popular answer in some respects to the question of, is there hope? Ultimately, many people would say no. Things are and will continue to be the way that they are. There will continue to be corruption, decay, death. That's just the way that, that it is. And if we do, often uh, in our culture, and, and I buy into this, often if we think about hope, sometimes it's, it's a shallow hope. Do we expect good things to come? Do we desire good things to come and expect them to happen? And the answer would be, uh, yeah. I, I think that you know, ultimately maybe we'll figure things out. The human race, will, things will just get better. One of my favorite bands, My Morning Jacket, has a song called The Day is Coming. And it talks about the day is coming when things will be right. But it never answers the question, what's going to make that happen? How? How are things going to be okay? It's just a, a general hope. If I were to say, uh, I hope that you come to my party. I'm throwing a party and I say, I hope that you come. I'm, I think I'm saying, you might come, but you might not. If I say, I hope that I win the lottery, that's probably not going to happen. But if I say that my hope is in this buried treasure I have out in my backyard, imagine, which I don't have that, if I had buried gold in my backyard, my financial hope would be in my backyard. It's there. It's real. And that's actually the hope that the Bible is talking about. When we talk about Christian hope, it's objective. It's real. It's God's redemption. His plan of bringing blessing, of filling this world with his goodness, his righteousness, his hope. Here's the problem, though. What we so often see, what we so often experience, is disappointing and painful, worrying, depressing, and seemingly devoid of hope. Where is the hope in cancer? Where is the hope in the loss of a family member? Where is the hope in the loss of a job? Or where is the hope when your children go a direction you do not want them to go? In relational brokenness, we see it, and we experience it, and it seems totally empty of hope. So where is the hope? Well, our response to this, conditioned by sin, is, is one of these, of these two things. And it's probably both of these things simultaneously. One, it's a cynical response to say that there is no hope. Nothing is going to get better. It's going to stay the, about the same amount of bad forever. And another response conditioned by sin would be a false present hope. To say there is hope, it's in my money. It's in my children. My hope is in my job. It's in my plans. It's in my desires for a husband or a wife or for things to change for me. My hope is in these things. But both of these responses are ultimately empty. Cynicism is empty because every day we wake up, the implicit thing that we're saying is that there's some reason to keep going. And maybe it's instinctive, but it's more than that. That as human beings, we have to hope. We keep longing that things are going to get better, that there's some reason to just keep going. But a false present hope, this is empty as well. Because as much as we might like to think our hope can be in our money, in our children, in our marriage, these things, 
when they are messed with, when they disappoint us, they, they drain our hope. And they make us feel like things are, are empty, hopeless, futureless. So what do we do with this? And Paul's answer for us, the good news, is that there is a hope. But it's not what we see currently in its fullness. There is a hope. And we have it, but it's unseen. We have a hope that is unseen. And that's our topic this morning. We have a hope that is unseen. And what I want to talk about, how I want to get at this, is to ask the question first, I mean, how, how is hope that is unseen, how is that possibly hopeful? How is that actually hope if I can't see it right now and fully experience it? But also, what does this actually mean for my present life? And so I want to look at three aspects of hope, three realities that Paul gives us. One, the future of hope. Two, the groaning of hope. And three, the waiting of hope. Future, groaning, and waiting. So first, the future of hope. This this is an issue of when. When can we expect things to get better? When are things going to change? We see in this passage, first of all, that our hope is not in the present. You look at verse 18. See it there that when Paul says, I I consider that the sufferings of this present time, sufferings of this present time. So what we experience right here in the present is disappointing, painful. It's not the way it's meant to be. And Paul goes on and tells us, you can look in verse 19, he starts telling us the story of God and his creation. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. What Paul is doing there, he's going from the beginning to tell the story that God made a good world. He made a world without disease, without death, without suffering. But then when sin entered the world, the world was cursed. That God actually is the one who subjected which means he placed it under. He placed this world under a curse of futility, of frustration, so that now when we work, thorns and thistles are part of our work. Frustration, earthquakes, floods, things that make us feel like things are hopeless, that are obviously, to us, not the way that it's meant to be, that we we don't want that. God subjected this world to that curse so that we would not put our hope in the present time. So our hope is not in the present. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. We are not the way we're meant to be. But also our hope is not absent from the present. And this is very obvious in verse 20. Just in the phrase, in hope. So God subjected the creation to futility in hope. And what hope is that? that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That God subjected it to futility and frustration so that instead of hoping in the present, we would look ahead to a future when God would redeem and restore us, to give us incorruptible bodies, to wipe away every tear from our eyes, to take away grief and depression and anxiety to give us a new creation where we can live and enjoy him forever. 
and with us the whole creation that's been frustrated with things like famine and floods that that won't be anymore. Those won't be in the new creation. And so there is a hope. Our hope is not in the present, but it's not absent from the present. How how can we respond to this, this tension here? I'll give you an illustration. Imagine, if you will, if at my house, my wife and I, we ran out of food in our pantry, uh, which happens a lot because I don't know how to do the grocery planning. People have blogs about how to shop so that you don't have to go back to the grocery store in two weeks. I don't know. I can't do it. I don't know. So we run out of uh, food a lot. So we get to the point where all we have in the pantry is a lot of expired food. So imagine we're in that situation. It's my fault. And my wife, very sweet, uh, she says, all we have is moldy bread, bad eggs, sour milk. And so she says, I'm going to go out and get us Thai food. I'm going to go get us takeout. And I stay at home very lazy. So... This never happens. It does. So my wife, she goes out. And in that moment, though, I know she's going out to get food, but I'm still hungry. My stomach's rumbling, really hungry. And so I, I just give up. I say, I'm hungry right now. I want food right now. So I go in, and I just get the moldy bread, and I get the bad eggs, and I just drink the bad eggs raw, and eat the moldy bread, drink the sour milk, because just anything to satisfy my hunger, I'm just going to fill my stomach with anything. You would say, that was a dumb response. It was a bad response. And imagine also, my wife goes out, there's traffic. And it's taking her longer than I, I think it should. So she's out for 20 minutes, and I start panicking. What if she never comes back with the food? <laughs> Focus on the food. She never, she's not going to come back with the food. And so I, I put all of our plates and our refrigerator and our silverware on Craigslist <laughs> and sell it for $10, all of it. I say, it's hopeless. Food's never coming. And I write out a note, you know, I write in scratchy hand and say, if you're reading this, it's too late. I have died from starvation. <laughs> and I leave it there forever we'll find it. You would say, this is also a bad response. Because my hope for satisfying my hunger is not in the present with the bad milk. But it's also not absent from the present. If my wife is trustworthy, which she is, so what I'm saying there, what I'm getting at, is that we cannot place our hope anything in anything in the present, but must look instead for a future that God is bringing. We cannot place our hope in anything in the present. This distinction of in and for is very important. Because you and I, we can hope for many things. It's good to hope for a job promotion. It's good to hope for a husband or a wife. It is good to hope for good health for you and for your children. There's only one thing to put your hope in, for your hope to be rooted in, and that's God's future of restoration. Your hope cannot be in the present, because if your hope is in your health, it's like drinking that sour milk, because when it's taken away, it then removes your hope. When your children rebel... It removes your hope. You cannot place your hope in the present because as things currently are, they are broken, not the way they're meant to be. But at the same time, we cannot remove our hope from our lives. We cannot lose hope within the present because there is a future for us. There is a future hope. And we can be troubled by many things. 
We can be concerned about many things. For, imagine for many of you, the election is very concerning for various reasons. And many of those reasons are perhaps incredibly valid. You'd be troubled by it, worried potentially for the state of our country. But in every concern, you have to keep one ending always in view, which is that God is bringing new creation in the future. He is bringing restoration to this world. Because in your concern about the election, you you can become dour, bitter, venomous towards those who disagree with you. The same can be true about the church. You can be concerned about things that you see in the church. You see hypocrisy, potentially, and you're concerned about it. But if you don't keep the end in view that God is bringing a future where there is no hypocrisy, and only only restored humanity, then you can become very judgmental towards the church and towards its members and think that you have it all right. So your hope is not in the present, but it's also not absent from the present. We have a hope that is just not here in this present time. So secondly, the groaning of hope. And we're groaning here in this passage has the tone of indignation and longing. Both of those things, indignation and longing. So first, our, res- our groaning is a response to and against futility. You look in verse 20. So the, for the creation is, uh, was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of God, of the children of God. Things are not the way they're meant to be. They're longing for a future. Verse 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. That word there, groaning, it it means lament. To lament together. That the creation itself laments because things are not the way they're meant to be. Futility, actually, in the Greek, is the same word that's used in the Greek translation of Ecclesiastes, vanity, vanity of vanities. The author of Ecclesiastes looks at what he sees in the world and it's all futility, all vanity, all frustration. People are born, people die, they work hard, and then they are forgotten. So the key to life's meaning is not found in itself. You find is frustration. Paul says here, because of that, the creation itself groans, it laments over what is not meant to be. The decay, disease, earthquakes, all these things are not the way it's meant to be. So the creation itself, but also we, we groan against this futility. We are to groan against it, to say disease, poverty, all these things are not what they're meant to be. Broken relationships, it's not right, it's not God's plan. It was never God's plan. At the same time, our groaning is a response to and of the Holy Spirit working within us. Look at verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. First fruits there, that's a term referring to the harvest. That the first fruits would be the first portion that are gathered at the harvest which would be a down payment and a guarantee that there's more to come. And for us as Christians, 
the Holy Spirit is given to us as a down payment. That through the Holy Spirit, God communicates to us our adoption. That we are his children. He communicates that we are redeemed, that we belong to him. At the same time, though, we are waiting for a full adoption. To fully and totally experience relationship with him as children. Removed from brokenness. And we are also waiting for a full redemption, not only of our souls, but of our bodies as well. Where our bodies will not break down. Where they will not age and decay. So the Holy Spirit within us is responding to the futility, but it's also, as we experience the Holy Spirit communicating these things, we say, I want more. I want more joy. I want more of this. The Holy Spirit, what it's doing in my life, I don't want... I don't want that brokenness. I want the good stuff. Uh, one of my friends who became a dad fairly recently, he told me that one of his favorite things that he got to do when his son uh, was old enough to start eating solid food is that he gave his son ice cream for the first time. He said it was so fun. You know, usually his son would eat mashed up peas and carrots and just kind of you know, chew it, kind of bland. But then when he first gave him ice cream, his son's eyes lit up to the size of basketballs. And just, you know, he just, and he kept making the sign for more. You know, I guess they teach babies sign language. And so um, he just kept signing more and more. I want more of this ice cream. He said it was wonderful. It was, it was a beautiful thing to see. The ice cream's good. But he also said it made it harder because now when he would be feeding his son after that, you know, trying to feed him the mashed up peas, his son was sort of like, I appreciate the gesture, but, you know, where's the good stuff? <laughs> I know you have it. You gave me some of it. I want more. I want more of that good stuff. And in many ways, that's what the Holy Spirit is, is doing in us. It's groaning against what's wrong, but also longing for what's right. More of that. So we groan against what we groan for. Uh, in the film Blackfish, which came out two years ago, it's a documentary about whales in SeaWorld and uh, in this film, there's a scene where a whale is taken um, out of its natural habitat and placed in a tank at SeaWorld, and it's removed from its children. So this mother whale removed from its children. And in this scene, this mother whale starts just groaning, this deep, earthy cry of sadness, of sorrow that's been removed from its children. This scene is very haunting. And as I was looking at this passage, I think about that noise, that, that groaning, longing for what's right and groaning against what's wrong. And ultimately, as I think about this, I think of Jesus at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. It says there that he was indignant and that he wept. So it's an indignant groan at death and longing for resurrection, which Jesus provides. But for us... What this shows is that we are called to groan over what's not the way it's meant to be. We're called to groan over what's not the way it's meant to be. In the movie Inside Out, which is a great film, came out last year. In, in the film, uh, they personify the emotions of this little girl. And at the beginning of her life, the one emotion that's in her mind is joy. And she's experiencing a fun life, a, a really just you know happy, fun life, but second something disappointing happens, another emotion pops up, and that's sadness. Sadness comes in to the mind with joy, and joy's upset about it. Feels like sadness needs to go. 
Because she, this little girl, she can't be happy if she has sadness. She can't have joy if she has sadness. As the movie goes on, eventually the movie tells us and joy realizes that in many ways you can't have joy without sorrow. These things aren't opposed to each other. They're often there together. And in the same way, hope is not opposite to sorrow. Hope is often mixed with sorrow. And as Christians, there may be a tendency to think that because we have a future where things will be made right, we can never lament, never groan, never say this is not the way it's meant to be. That when tragedy strikes, us or someone else that we know, we may want to run to the statement, this is all part of God's plan, which is true. But at the same time, while disease God is working through it. It's part of his plan, but it's not the substance of our hope. Part of God's plan, it's not the substance of our hope. Cancer is not good. It's not the way it's meant to be. Death is not good. It's not the way it's meant to be. And so we are called to hopeful groaning, hopeful lamenting. This is not the same as complaining. Uh, when I looked at how much I owe the IRS recently, I, just, I groaned, you know, just like, ah, you know, this, this internal, this is not the way it's meant to be for me. Um, but it's not that, actually. It's not, it's not this, it's about my plans and my desires. No, hopeful groaning is lamenting whatever it is that's not the way it's meant to be and longing for God's future, lamenting what's not right, Longing for God's future. And we do this towards others. We're to groan for others around us. For people that are hurting. For those in this community and outside that are suffering. We're to groan a lot more than we fix. So when I, when I say to move into the lives of people that are hurting, what we might move into is uh, I need to fix problems. If someone needs a ride... We can give them a ride. If someone uh, needs help with their power bill, we can help them with their power bill, which is wonderful and a sign of new creation. But we are to groan a lot more than we fix. Because when there are problems that we can't fix, often cynicism moves us away from those people. Rather than to enter into the suffering, to sit with people, to listen, to cry with them, to grieve with them, when we can't fix it. We're called to do that, that hopeful groaning, because God is making all things new. We're also to groan in ourselves, for ourselves. It's good to groan over our bodies, to react against disease, to hope for cure, to react against life-threatening illnesses. It's wonderful. But also to groan for the time that is coming when God will redeem and totally restore our bodies so they will not decay, so that we will not die. We're to groan for that. I mean, this actually says something as well about our body image. We're to groan for a time when we won't obsess over our bodies. Uh, I don't, I'm not buff now. I don't see any reason why I should be buff in the new heavens and new earth. So when I talk about a redeemed body, I'm not talking about your body as you, the supermodel version of you, but a time when you won't look at your body and experience shame. Can you imagine that? A time when you will look the entirety of your body and not be ashamed. 
You won't hate anything about it. God will redeem and restore your own body image. But much more, we groan over our bodies and the decay as we, we age and things break down. How much more should we groan over our sin that's living within us? There's many excusable sins that I often, uh, that I excuse without looking to hope. For me, one of those things is how selfish I am with my time. Um, and the excuse I usually give is that I'm an introvert, which is true. So, so I make a lot of excuses about avoiding deep conversations with my wife or contacting friends that I've lost touch with because I need my time. I need my time alone. How much more than I groan over my physical body should I groan over the selfishness within me that's not the way it's meant to be and long for a time where I'm selfless, to long for a time when I'm made like Christ. We're to groan. So there's a future, and we're called to groan for it, but thirdly, the waiting of hope. My wife pointed out to me that the Spanish word for hope, which I will not attempt to pronounce, um, has this meaning of to hope in Spanish means expectant waiting. So waiting with patience. Hope is that, waiting with patience. And Paul is exactly saying that here. We wait eagerly first, but we are called to eager waiting. You can look in verse 23. So not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. The picture that I imagine that Paul's giving here is of a son waiting for his father to come home. So a young boy waiting for his father to come home. He's, he's in front of the door, so excited that he's coming home. And while he's waiting, he sets up toys. You know, he gets things ready. He starts planning out what he's going to do when he's there. He's eagerly waiting. He's looking forward to what's coming. And that's what Paul is saying here about eager waiting. Waiting with, with total I can't wait for this to happen. But also, we're to wait with patience. Verse 24 says, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So what brings these two things together, eagerness and patience, is the fact that in this hope we were saved. That we already have this salvation but we are also waiting for its full delivery. We have the Holy Spirit, but we are longing and waiting for new creation to come. And that means patience. A good friend of mine, in many ways, imperfectly, of course, really demonstrated this, this eagerness with patience. And there's a friend of mine named Ben. Um, And Ben um, was uh, just over 20 years old when he was diagnosed with cancer. And he is the younger brother of my best friend. And so he, when he was diagnosed with cancer, the doctors told him he had three months to live. He ended up, um, he actually fought the cancer for uh, closer to two years. But in that time, Ben, who was a very charismatic Christian, um, we both had different views about God and healing. They were always very friendly discussions. But I've never met anyone with a greater hope than Ben. He hoped in Jesus and the healing that is coming for this world with greater power and passion than anyone I've ever met in my entire life. And he was 21 years old. After he was diagnosed with cancer, 
he, he spent so much of his time going out and speaking with people, people that he had not met before, people that he knew about Jesus and this hope that he had. And he would always talk about his own cancer, and he'd say, when God heals me. And whenever he said that in front of me, it, it, I, I felt a little bit uncomfortable, mostly because I wished that I had the, the faith that he had. And I loved him. I worried about Ben. And so he would say, when God heals me, and he would go on from there. When he was, uh, about a year and a half later, he was on his deathbed, and a nurse went into the room. He was taking care of him. And Ben, there he is, and he's, he's in the last few weeks of his life, and he starts asking this nurse about herself. That's just kind of the guy he was. And he asked her if she had a family, and she said she had a son, and so he asked her about him. And she started sharing with Ben, saying that she, um, telling him that her son did not know the Lord, and she was very worried about him, about Ben's age. And Ben asked if he could pray for this boy and pray for his salvation. And the nurse had to flee. She just left the room because she, she waited after the prayer, and she left because she was, was crying so intensely, just being overwhelmed the power of this young man eagerly expecting that God is at work. But more than that, Ben would always say, when God heals me, but in the end, when it became clear that, that he was going to die, Ben wrote this text to his pastor and his friend, and he said this. He said, no matter what seems to happen or what doubt tries to come at me, I can't seem to doubt the goodness of God. It's just impossible for me to see him as bad. No matter what happens in life, uh, no matter how much pain and suffering there seems to be, my mind won't even go down that road. And he suffered a lot. He said, I can't go down that road. I know God is good. So Ben was eager with expectation that he was patient in suffering. And ultimately, his, his family great, found great hope after he died that he is healed and that he is waiting for his resurrection body in the presence of the Lord. And so what this means for us is we have every reason to live with eager expectation that God's future redemption is coming. We have every reason to believe that. And the reason is that Jesus has come. New creation has already started, though we wait for it. And that eagerness, that longing for God's future to spring up in the here and now as the Spirit is at work, as we proclaim the gospel, it will move to a great desire in us for us to see that, to see God's future spring up into the present. So my question for you is, what's your posture this morning towards hope? Do you have great eagerness towards those you know that do not know the Lord? Do you long for them to know the Lord? Is your great passion, desire for that? Does it lead you to pray for them and to know them well and to serve them well? Is that your desire? We are, we are invited into that desire this morning. And what is your eagerness towards your relationships, towards your marriage? Um, I've been married only long enough to know that any hope for a perfect marriage here and now would be a false present hope. I know that. Um, because of me and my sin, both of our sin, I know that. But cynicism has no place in marriage. We should all have an eager expectation that God will be working and bringing new creation life into our relationships, our marriages, but also our community groups. Do you have an eager longing 
for your community group to display more and more the restoration that is coming. You have that posture. You're invited into it this morning. So we have every reason to have that eager expectation, but we have every reason to wait patiently as well. God has shown us his trustworthiness in his son. Later in Romans 8, Paul writes this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If he gave us his son, won't he give us everything else? Everything that belongs to us as his children. But we must wait. And it's patience that we're called to. Endurance. It will stop us from becoming cynical when we suffer, when we're disappointed, that when illness strikes, when our health is taken away, when our children go away that is disappointing or hurtful to us, when relationships break, we are called to groan over that, but also to look even more so to the future that is coming, to be patiently looking and longing for that hope and to not give up, to not become cynical. And for us in this community, the call for each one of us is that we're in this together and we're in it for the long haul. Each one of us needs to lean into that invitation to say, I will wait eagerly, but I will wait with patience. My life will be filled with many things that I am not not pleased with, that I groan over, but in that I will wait. I'll wait for the Lord. I'll wait with hope. Let me close with this. Um, in 1 Peter 1.8, Peter gives us this wonderful and beautiful promise. And he says, though you have not seen him, referring to Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Though you do not see Jesus in the flesh right now, though you do not see his kingdom fully present right now, you know that he loves you. You know that he gave his life for you. You know that he took the curse of frustration and death and sin on himself at the cross so that by his life, you will be promised that all of your sorrow, all your grief, all your depression, all your anxiety, all of your heartache, it will be wiped away. It will be wiped away. He has it. He has taken it. He's destroyed it. And he's redeemed you from it. And though you do not see him now in the present, he calls you to love him, to look to him, to groan and long for him, and to wait for him in hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning that we have this great hope. But God, we need, we need your spirit to work in us and to give us great patience because we long for you to come. And we know that we, as we are, are not the way that we're meant to be. And we long to be renewed. But God, bring your spirit to continually renew us and draw us to yourself. Give us this great hope. In your name we pray, amen.